Bujun and Dinoe Maganatug. Greetings, relatives. My name is Melissa Nelson, and I'm your host and gardener of the Native Seed Podcast. Welcome to the Native Seed Pod, a podcast aimed at celebrating the diversity and beauty of native seeds, soils, and indigenous foods. All right. Welcome, everybody, to the Native Seed Pod, episode two. We are so excited and just beside ourselves to have the amazing Leroy Little Bear featured in the second podcast of this series. Melissa, you spent time with this amazing human being, so full of knowledge and stories and so much to give. And really what he's talking about here is the Buffalo Treaty and all that that means. So I have to ask the big question, Melissa, what do Buffalo have to do with seeds? Thank you, Sarah. (laughs) It's so great to um, be here with you all talking about Buffalo Treaty and the Buffalo process as our second episode of the Native Seed Podcast. And what do Buffalo have to do with seeds? I feel like we have to say something about this. This is the Native Seed Uh, Pod. Absolutely. I mean, there are so many ways. Let me count the ways that Buffalo and seeds are interconnected. And you will hear more about it from the master himself, from Leroy Little Bear, really talking about the ecological power and significance of the buffalo. But really quickly, um, buffalo are bringers of seeds. Mm. They are carriers of seeds. They are nurturers of seeds. The buffalo in their hooves and in their beautiful fur and in their guts, they spread around and reproduce and distribute the seeds of the northern plains from one ecosystem to another, from Alaska to Mexico at one point. They spread the beautiful native seeds of the short grass prairie, the tall grass prairie. Uh, they are wallowers. They make little wetlands that make water and bring the water up. And many people talk about how the thundering drumming of their hooves on the earth stimulates the aquifers, much like when we get a massage or get acupuncture, and it brings the fresh energy from deep in the earth to the surface. And so that water is so vital to the seeds and to the grassland. And in their hooves, again, they redistribute them from one location to another. So buffalo are so integral and keystone to the health of the northern plains. And they love seeds, they eat seeds, they process and metabolize seeds, they redistribute them, and they love them, and they're part of them. It's important, too, to remember when we envisioned this podcast series, we were talking about seeds not just as themselves, but the metaphorical seeds, the thought seeds, the song seeds, the creative development seeds, all of these things that are things that we cultivate into being. And what that means to go through that process in every level, physically, spiritually, emotionally, all of those things that connect us that way. And Leroy, oh, to sit at the feet of Leroy and listen to the original stories. It's exquisite. It's really so powerful. And, you know, in this fast paced world where we're running, I'm running from one thing to another and listening to things on my iPhone and my computer and things have gotten so fragmented and and so chopped up to put all of that away and sit like I did on a snowy morning in Saskatoon on the Saskatchewan River overlooking a gentle snow coming down. It was the exact new moon in March. And we just sat there human to human, heart to heart, elder to younger. And he just shared so much wisdom And he did it the old way. We could have been in a teepee on a buffalo robe. Mm. I felt like there was a timeless quality of hearing him unfold these circles of stories that are so interconnected with really no beginning and no end. And yet 
they tell this incredible narrative of this epic restoration of the buffalo and the seed that the buffalo is for the health of North America, of Turtle Island, and the seed that buffalo is for the health of our native peoples and restoring the strength of the land and remembering that that buffalo spirit is still with us despite so much. So this is going to be a different type of podcast. It's going to be sitting at the feet of an elder, of a knowledge holder. It's going to be putting aside that busy monkey mind with a to-do list. It's really emptying out to receive deep wisdom and deep knowledge. And so we are here to share that with you. We're also going to be hearing from another beloved elder. Mm, Our beautiful Rose. Our beautiful Rose. Rose Von Totter Imai. Uh, founder and director of the Native American Academy, she's the one who really formally introduced me to Leroy Little Bear well over a decade ago. And he was so warm, he and his beautiful wife, Amethyst, and we became family. And so Rose, as uh, really a, a beloved elder and teacher, has been deeply inspired by the Buffalo Treaty as well. So she's going to share some about her story and her relationship in this growing kin and family of the Buffalo Treaty community. I don't know if Melissa has told you or Sarah, but um, there was a Buffalo Treaty that has been signed now. And it is about the re-emergence, the renewal of the Buffalo Mm. and what that actually means in all of its aspects, agriculturally, spiritually, the ecology of the Buffalo, the uh, uses and, and gifts and teachings and methods of learning and so just recently 14 buffalo were brought from their descendants of the original plains bison i guess 150 175 years ago they scooped up a small herd and spirited them up to canada where they've been living on elk island for all this time and three or four maybe five years ago um, when this work began among the Blackfeet, um, the first eight tribes that signed were all across the Montana-Alberta border, and they control something like eight million acres, and they have now committed themselves by signing this treaty. So that means it's going into the schools. The understanding and learning about Buffalo is going into the schools. It's going into um, economic development planning. It's going into the agricultural planning. All of this is happening, and that's a renewal and a resurgence that it's almost impossible to really put it into words. All right, recording, uh, St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, 2018, uh, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. And speak a little bit more there. What you have for breakfast? I had the best omelet in town mm. in Saskatchewan nice. at the James Hotel. Ah, great, great, excellent. Uh, welcome, Leroy. It's so honor to have you here um, as part of the Native Seed podcast of the Cultural Conservancy. <laughs> My pleasure. Great. Uh, if you'd like to just introduce yourself and then tell us what brings you to Saskatoon this week. Yeah. My Blackfoot name is uh, Lowhorn. I'm of the Small Ropes Band. I belong to Ghana or Blood Tribe, and we're of the Blackfoot Confederacy. My English name, of course, is Leroy, Little Bear, from the Blood Tribe and University of Lethbridge. Oh, last fall, I had an invitation from Think Indigenous Education Conference and wanted me to uh, do a keynote talk for for the conference, so that's what we came for, and really enjoyed ourselves here. 
And so buffalo used to roam all around here, right? They Oh, very much so, yes. Mm-hmm. There's been estimates that there were several millions, some go as high as 60 million buffalo uh, roaming the, the plains. And they almost became extinct, you know, at the end of the uh, 1800s. But luckily, a few of them were saved and so on. And that herd has been the source of the existing buffalo that are now, you know, in ranches and parks and so on. Yes. Great. And so your nation, um, the Blackfoot Confederacy, are, are buffalo people, right? You, The buffalo means a lot to you. The buffalo, most people think of in terms of subsistence. Well, yes, that's only one part of the story. And yes, we did. We did that. Uh, use the buffalo for subsistence purposes. And in fact, we have stories that go way back, some of our uh, even trickster stories, you know, that talk about the buffalo. And in fact, there were times when there was a time when buffalo, in fact, ate humans. And then you know, an agreement took place between the buffalo and humans, and it was the other way around. And so we have stories that go way back. But culturally, uh, the buffalo figures really, you know, in a huge manner into the whole culture of the Blackfoot. In Blackfoot, we have what we call the Horn Society. It's a sacred society, okay? And they have special knowledge. That society has been the longest existing society in, if we want to say, in Blackfoot history. It's been around from way back continues to be uh, in existence. They still do all their dances, songs, ceremonies, and so on, every summer at our sun dances. Okay. There's also a Buffalo Women's Society that kind of parallels the Horn Society, and that has also been in existence. And Every, at every summer encampment, the uh, women's society do their ceremonies which go and exist for four days and so on. There's a little bit of a break and then the men, the Horn Society, does their ceremonies. And so culturally, our relationship to the buffalo has been, you know, very close, so much so that, hey, we have sacred societies revolving around the buffalo, and ceremonies that are based on on those that relationship. We have songs and so on, and stories that go with that. And the buffalo has so much power for Native peoples of the plains, as you said, culturally and spiritually, and of course as food. And you just mentioned, alluded to, that the bringing back the buffalo also has benefits to the land itself, uh, the other animals and the plants. Can you say a little bit about that or give an example of that? Oh, very much so. What I have always told people is, you cannot find a better environmentalist than the buffalo. Okay. What do we mean by that? Well, the, the fact of the matter is, 
you know, if, if we left the buffalo outside, just out of the picture for now, and just look at us as human beings, they impact the footprint we have on the land, okay? That footprint, that impact is not very good, okay? In other words, there may have been a time when we could have said, well, just through natural processes, the land can replenish itself. However, I think we've gone overboard so that I don't think even if the land was being able to replenish itself, develop those immunities, it can never catch up with the amount of pollution, with the amount of damage and so on that's required. So we, we as humans can't do it alone. We need help from other beings. And in this case, the buffalo is a very good animal to have around. The buffalo tilts the soil. Did you know that? The buffalo, you know, brings back uh, animals, smaller animals, insects, birds that have all disappeared. Okay, but as soon as as soon as the buffalo comes back, hey, all those other animals kind of come back. In other words, an ecosystem develops around the buffalo. I kind of like look at it, you know, from a basketball or a hockey team perspective. You know, Cleveland Cavaliers, hey, they've got LeBron James, okay? LeBron is the centerpiece and the team is developed around LeBron. You know, Edmonton Oilers, hey, McDavid is the star and the team is built around McDavid. Well, in the same manner, hey, when we're talking about uh, a keystone animal that's very good for the environment, the buffalo is the star, you know? and things develop around that buffalo. It brings back all these other animals that make for a very good eco-balance. Okay? So that's the a very important role that the buffalo plays. So it's as we've said at the beginning, it's not just about subsistence. It is about, you know, it is about an eco-balance it brings up. So the animal, the buffalo, is very keystone in that sense. And so every year, those stories, those ceremonies, are being renewed. You know, and the whole the whole um, issue about the uh, buffalo treaty. Uh, was a situation where we met with elders. In fact, one of our graduate students was doing her environmental studies and in the process had elders working with her. But it was at one of those meetings the elders started to say, we're getting concerned, really getting concerned because this whole issue about the buffalo and our people and especially the young people do not do not see the buffalo on a daily basis anymore so they don't make the connections we started and we called ourselves the ini initiative ini ini in blackfoot is buffalo so we started to hold what we would call buffalo dialogues. Okay. And 
we started holding those Buffalo Dialogues probably around 2008. We started holding them for five, six years. We held those Buffalo Dialogues. And as we said, more and more people came and joined the, uh, the Dialogues. We held them all over Blackfoot country including the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana and all the we held them all over the place. I've even I've even lost count how many of those dialogues we had. It was from that uh kind of circles, talking circles if you wanna call them, that the, uh, they said, well, we can't do this by ourselves let's go and talk to our neighbors and see if we can interest them in <clears throat> coming together. And our idea of coming together is let's sign a treaty with them. Because we used to sign treaties amongst ourselves way before we signed treaties with the United States or Canada. So we think a treaty will be the best route to try and bring all our people together. But before I tell you more about the uh, treaty itself, let me uh, just talk a little bit about the, the dialogues themselves. We would, you're familiar with, uh, with dialogues. Um, but at those dialogues, we sit in a circle, round table sometimes, but we also had an empty seat for the, for the buffalo. Okay, we always had an empty seat. So that the buffalo, the spirit of the buffalo would, uh, would, uh, you know, be amongst us. One of the stories that came out, just as a slight segue, was on the uh, on the uh, blood reserve. There's they were surveying a new road that was going to go through the reserve, and these surveyors were um, looking through their scope on one part of the reserve. And the surveyor, all of a sudden, would look through his scope and then he would stand aside and he'd look around all over the place. Look through the scope, then back off and look all over the place. Finally, he told his assistant, come over here, look through that scope and tell me what you see. And so his assistant looked through the scope he backed off, looked all over the place, looked through the scope again. So the, he asked, what do you see? The guy says, when I look through that scope, I see thousands of buffalo out there. Okay. And there was all, they also saw, when they were looking through that scope, they also saw an encampment, a TP encampment of three, four TPs. And in fact, the as they were planning the road and surveying it, the road was going to go right through that camp. <laughs> and so they backed off and they said, there's something special about this place. So we're, uh, they purposely built the road around the camp and so on. So it was the, these kind of stories and these were non-Indian surveyors. They weren't Indians that were. So those kind of things happened. So there were all kind of stories about the, uh, when we, you know, about the buffalo, our relationship with them in those talking circles. But then the buffalo, it's hard to explain how it happens, but 
the buffalo would ask us loaded questions. And one of the questions the buffalo asked was, what do you guys want to come me to come back? You guys, you guys have lived without me for over a hundred years. Why do you want me to come back? And so the people in the circle had to answer the buffalo and so on. And another question was just saying, well, you know, if I come back, what are you guys going to do? Is it just the same old or what are you guys planning to do? So it, it was even those kind of questions coming from that empty seat. See? The overall conclusion of those dialogues was the buffalo never left us. The buffalo, is, its spirit is still out there. It's us that left the buffalo. Yeah. So it's us that have to come back. Okay. And consequently, that's why they said, well, our young people are not making the connections. We need to have those young people see that buffalo on a daily basis so that they'll make the connections about our relationship to the buffalo, the songs, the stories, and so on. But if there's no buffalo out there to see, we're just a little bit less blackfoot. <laughs> The Native Seed Pod is produced by the Cultural Conservancy with generous support by Tamil Pius Trust. To contribute to our polyculture and to find out more information, please visit us at nativeseedpod.org or nativeland.org. You've been a main leader of the Buffalo Treaty Movement. Uh, what is the Buffalo Treaty exactly? The treaty is going to be one means of trying to bring our people together. So they gave us the job. They told a few of us, go and work on draft the treaty and come back and bring it to us. So we worked with some of the elders and so on and we invited a large number of other tribes and they came, we all came together at the University of Lethbridge and for three, four days we worked drafting the treaty and so that's where the copy of the treaty was, came up. And then in the fall of 2014 in fact, in September of 2014, all of those people that worked together on both sides of the border came together and signed the treaty on the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana. The original signatories were four tribes on the American side. They were the Fort Peck Reservation, uh, Fort Belknap, the Blackfeet, and the Kootenai Salish over in Flathead Country. On the Canadian side, it was the Blood Tribe, the uh, North Pagans, Siksika or Blackfoot, and the uh, Sarsi or Tsutsina. So all together, there were eight First Nations, sovereign nations that came together to sign the treaty. So now we have, you know, geez, you know, over 20 First Nations that have signed on to the treaty. Last year, the first anniversary of the treaty was held in uh, the Fort Peck Reservation. And we've got into a practice of going back and forth across the border. So in 2015, 
the uh, Fort Peck were the hosts for the anniversary. In 2016, which where you were at, Melissa, mm -hmm. uh, we had it in Banff. Alberta had a joint meeting of the treaty signatories with American Bison Society. And that was also historic in the sense that the uh, this was the first time the American Bison Society had ever held their uh, biannual conference uh, outside of the United States. So, Melissa, you were in Banff at the signing of this treaty. What was that like? It was extraordinary, Sarah, to be there with hundreds of, of Native people and conservationists and environmentalists all celebrating the return of the buffalo to Banff National Park. It was incredible. We had a sunrise ceremony uh, with many of the traditional pipe carriers and keepers of that area. A beautiful, cold, crisp morning. And we prayed for the buffalo and with the buffalo and asked for blessings from the buffalo and for that land to accept them in a good way. It was extraordinary. And then we went back to town and there were all these teepees set up and all these elders were signing it because at that point it was no longer just sovereign nations who signed mm. it, but it was actually individuals. So Rose Von Totter and myself, we were actually able to sign the Buffalo Treaty. The treaty itself uses the buffalo as the centerpiece. It's as though the buffalo is bringing us all together. And I've been referring to it as the portal for cooperation amongst all these First Nations. The treaty itself speaks to conservation, education issues, health, okay, research, economics. See, those are large, broad areas that the signatories have agreed to work together in those, either individually or as a collective. So let me tell you some of the things that have been happening. On the Blackfeet Reservation, <clears throat> not so much right on the reservation, but adjacent to it and adjacent to the Glacier National Park is an area called Badger Tomb Medicine. And the, the tribe, the Blackfeet tribe, with the support of the other signatories, have succeeded in getting that area declared as a historical cultural area. Okay, kind of like a protected area. However, prior to that, there was a whole bunch of oil and gas leases that were out there. And, but through letters and resolution from the signatories to Sally Jewell, who was the uh, Secretary of the Interior at the time, they, they, they withdrew all the leases. However, what's kind of slowing it up and holding things up is there's one oil company that's suing for, <laughs> for getting their lease uh, withheld or taken back by the government. So that's a little bit of legal issue there. But once that's all cleared up, the Blackfeet are planning as part of a historical, cultural, protected area. They're planning to stock the area with, with buffalo. Okay, so that's, that's happening and so on. Over the mountains into the Flathead country, the, what's happening there is there is a national bison range on the reservation. Now, the national bison range was, a, was, was a, 
developed and set up with good intentions. I think it was President Roosevelt who, with, you know, with good intention, wanted to save the buffalo. But what happened was they never consulted the, uh, the Indians, the Salish Kootenai. They simply took a whole chunk of land out of the reservation <laughs> declared it as a national bison range and stocked it with buffalo. Okay. And ever since then, yes, in the middle of the reservation is this national bison range. And it was, like I said, it was done with good intention with regard to buffalo uh, restoration, but it was done without consultation, without any kind of uh, you know, pay or anything. The, the tribe was just at a loss, just lost a great big piece of land. So now we've been working with Fish and Wildlife, the National Park people and so on. And we were just within inches that close in getting the uh, National Bison Range returned to the uh, Salish Kootenai. And again, the same thing happened with the change of government. Things came to, came to a standstill, but right now again, same story as Fort Pack, things are starting to pick up. So there's still a very good possibility within, we're thinking and within the next year or two, the National Bison Range is going to land and the buffalo are going to be returned to the uh, Salish Kootenai. And the Salish Kootenai's idea is, hey, we're going to keep it as it is, we're going to manage it, and we're going to manage it for all the other tribes. It's not just going to be for Salish Kootenai. We want to take it over but use it for educational, cultural purposes for all the other sec treaty signatories. So we're very close to getting that National Bison Range back as a result of the Buffalo Treaty. Yeah. On the Canadian side, in the province of Alberta, the position the government takes is that Plains Buffalo were extirpated. Not that they're all gone, there's lots of buffalo in uh, private buffalo ranches and so on. So there's no special law that protects the, uh, the buffalo. They're just declared as domestic no different than horses and cattle. Okay, so that's what's happening. And our main, our main efforts there, and again the signatories working together, is seeing if we can get the legal status of the buffalo changed from domestic to wild. If they're declared wild, then they're, you know, then they're under the control of species at risk and so on. They'll get protection and so forth. So we've been at that and we're very close to getting that, that status changed. In fact, in one small area close to the Banff National Park, we've succeeded in getting them declared as wild in that area. The last part of the story is that for, for a number of years Banff National Park had been thinking about reintroducing buffalo. The plans were all in their file drawers, okay? But when they heard about any initiative, hey, somebody found those plans and so on, and they said, hey, We've been thinking about this. I think we're going to do it. And they did. In 2016, a number of um, animals, a very small number, 
were reintroduced into uh, Banff National Park as part of what they called a slow release program. They put them into a kind of a smaller pasture and then they removed the fences to make the pasture larger and then they do another removal of the planet pretty soon roaming free. So by 2019 all the fences are going to be down okay and the buffalo are going to be free roaming okay. So and we've worked with Banff National Park. Our elders have met with them. They've established a, uh, a, an elder advisory group for the park. The buffalo are out there now. Very much served the role of a, a catalyst. The Yeni Initiative group was for the reintroduction of buffalo into Banff National Park. Did you know that they've reintroduced buffalo in Mexico? And they took uh, not plains buffalo, but what is known as uh, woodland buffalo from Woodland uh, National Park in northern Alberta, and they flew them into Alaska. <laughs> and so from Alaska down to Mexico, things are happening with the buffalo. So, and we heard the last week word we heard was those buffalo in Alaska were just doing fantastic. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So that was part of their original range from Alaska yes. to Mexico. Yes. And now they're being brought back in all those right. different regions. And Thanks. That's and very exciting. That's very exciting. And before I forget, incidentally, as one of those developments arising out of the treaty from the treaty signatories <coughs> we were successful in getting buffalo that were disease free from what is known as Elk Island Park in Alberta over to the Blackfeet Reservation back in 2016 and now the Blackfeet themselves have entered into an agreement with Oakland Zoo and they are going to donate a few head of buffalo to Oakland Zoo and that's going to be happening real soon the week of April 10th 2018 those buffalo are going to be in the Oakland Zoo and from the ENI initiative group, there's a whole bunch of us that are going to go down, accompany the buffalo, sing them down to the Oakland Zoo, you know, and welcome them. And we'd like to invite the people, you know, from the Oakland and Bay Area to come and see and welcome the buffalo to uh, Oakland. Well, we will be there with uh, open arms and um, do our outreach with the right. beautiful intertribal community in the Bay Area who will love to see that buffalo in our yeah. in our neighborhood and all the California Indian people. Uh, so that will be a special day and a great connection uh, to see the buffalo return even in our backyard in the Bay Area. Right. Yes. So the elders are happy. They're saying their thinking is, hey, we're not talking about any one right way of getting the buffalo back, but hey, anywhere we can see buffalo, you know, whether it's on a buffalo ranch, whether you're roaming free in the national parks or provincial parks and so on, hey, any which way we can see buffalo, because our people, especially our young, need to see those buffalo to make the connections we have with those animals and to strengthen the culture. Yes. Mm. So that's the story of the, wow. uh, of the uh, Buffalo Treaty and all the happenings that have developed around it. Mm. 
Thank you, Leroy. That is such a profound and beautiful story of uh, hope and resilience um, uh, to bring back, like you said, something that was almost extinct. So, Sarah, you were there at the Oakland Zoo when they brought down the buffalo. I was. It was an amazing day, much like what you experienced in Banff. This was a real gathering of the people who were offering to bring the buffalo here and those receiving. It was an extraordinary circle. We were invited guests of Karina Gould and the Socorro Day Land Trust. Karina... Um, accepting the gift of the buffalo as they were received here. And, um, you know, what was so special about that morning was the buffalo were supposed to arrive within just about a day and a half, a very short, was supposed to be a short drive. And this ended up to be almost a three-day drive. They almost doubled their journey. And the story of their journey really is a whole other podcast. But as they arrived, they were a bit more weary than they had anticipated. The buffalo left the trailer. They went into their new space. They found trees to hide under, and they didn't come out for hours. And then as we were taking the gondolas up the hill to the new buffalo enclosure, Leroy Little Bear in the gondola ahead of us, leading the procession. And as his gondola passed over the top of their enclosure, the buffalo ran out of the trees. They came down for the first time to say hello. Mm. And it was the most breathtaking, poignant moment to say, the buffalo are back. We're here. And this is where we were meant to be. Mm. Really just powerful. That is incredible. And then to have the intertribal unity, which the buffalo is also bringing back, that intertribal unity by asking for permission for from the first peoples of the East Bay, the Chochenyo, Karkin, Ohlone peoples that Karina Gould is a leader of through many different movements with the Segorate Land Trust, the first and only Native women-led urban land trust mm. that is looking at bringing back this sacred relationship we have as guardians and caretakers and to take on the responsibility and learn from the Blackfeet about the care of the buffalo in her homelands. Such an act of generosity on on both parts. Yeah, and to receive not just the buffalo, but their stories and their songs and the ecological knowledge that they bring forward and the health of of not just people, but communities and larger global communities as we move forward in our relationships in a, in a stronger, more sound, ecological way. Um, it, it really is, it feels like a new beginning. So you were there, you saw them, and they were all female buffalo. They are all women. So the, the buffalo that arrived, the 14 buffalo that arrived, all women, um, and meant to be that way for the first few years to give these ladies a chance to establish and get to know their space and, and really um, become strong Acclimate. and acclimated, that's right, to the yeah. area. Um, and then the plan is was to bring the boys out um, kind of systematically over the next few years to start a breeding program. Mm, Yeah. And it's in our backyard for everyone in the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area. We now have these original sacred buffalo breeds and families uh, in the Oakland Hills in the Chochenyo Ohlone homelands. And what we learned that day, reintroducing the buffalo to California we are part of its original range. And as a person who has lived in California for most of my life, I had no idea. And as a native person, I had no idea. And what that means to bring that back this far and create those kinships and those trade routes and those exchanges of knowledge and songs and stories. It's just, it really is, as I was saying, it feels like a new beginning. 10 days ago, we thought these 14 buffalo, they were all female, were brought and there was a ceremony and Corinna welcomed them and took you know, responsibility for their spiritual care. 
And uh, 10 days ago, we found out that those ladies were carrying babies. And the first one was born, and wow. we think the second one is already here, and there are three more. So hold on to your hats, you know. We're, we're, we're playing with live ammo here. So, <laughs> so when you start talking about what your intention is, and you put that together. <laughs> yeah.